Welcome back to the School of Calisthenics podcast. Now, this is um, a special episode for sure because I got the chance to be interviewer on my own and um, eke out the story, the background story um, of Tim himself, uh, how he got uh, into coaching, where it all started. And we go way back to almost 10 years old, everything from being um, captain of his local rugby team all the way through to um, being a Paralympic SNC coach at the Rio Games and everything in between. And we finish off with what the School of Calisthenics has given him. Yeah, I think the, for those of you that heard me talk about my story before, we tried to take a little bit of a different route. I don't think I mentioned shoulder dislocations no, not once. once. No. Um, so it's yeah, hopefully there's some story. other stuff in there. And again, just a bit of an insight as to, to what my career has, has looked like and and how we've got to the point of starting the School of Calisthenics and, and where we are now. So uh, hopefully this gives you a bit of an insight. And if anybody wants to ask any questions or pick anything up and talk about anything in more detail, please feel free to get in touch. Um, I hope you enjoy this one. A bit of a sort of we go we go deep and we get into like the what ignites the passion of coaching and what's led you down to the journey that you've got to today so sit back relax and enjoy me tim's story on the scorecast and it's podcast Welcome back to the School of Calisthenics <laughs> podcast. Tim is laughing because Question Master has turned into interviewer because this podcast is all about Tim sharing his story and hopefully I can ask him some decent questions to eke that story out of him. Um, and we want to go in a little bit deeper than just, I just get my shoulder a few times, try to do a handstand and then we start doing calisthenics. Got. That's <laughs> me. Nothing else, Dave. But, um, so if, it, if Tim's role um, at the school calisthenics as sort of chief um coach shall we say and i start first started working with tim when i was learning how to be an snc coach from him um, but i want to go way back past that we'll, we'll touch on that what i was actually what did you actually think about me when i first started but i want to go way back past that and like where did where did coaching for you like coaching is just like your life effectively or in terms of certainly in terms of work but where did where did coaching all start for for you how far back was it i think the first time i remember doing the coaching was probably when i was playing rugby so i started playing rugby when i was about 10 years old um and then I think I was pretty captain of the team at under 12s, maybe. I think the same season, maybe that I dislocated my hip, which you can touch on later if you want. Um, but in part of the job was to lead the warm up. I think it's because the coach didn't really want to do it himself. So it was an easy thing to just go, Tim, you've got some responsibility. You take the warm up. So I used to just tell the lads what to do, run around. I didn't really, I had no context. It was almost just copying what we'd always done for the last couple of seasons in the past I was going to say where does that where does the reason what was the was there any reason Rash? was it just that you were capped like what was the why were you captain like what was the reason for you being captain uh, my rugby career peaked at, <laughs> at about 12-13 I used to run in I was playing fly off when, when we used to have like three man scrums so I was almost yeah. the first person to get <laughs> yeah. the ball so I just ran <laughs> no one else got it sometimes I score five tries in a game because I literally got it before anybody else and occasionally I would pass but at that stage, I was I was a, a late developer. I grew late, yeah. and at that stage, it was quite even. And I had a reason. I was I was a good athlete. Like I've, I, technically not great at any sport, but like athletic athletically, I could move, and I had some decent footwork and hand eye coordination when I was a kid. Um, 
So rugby at sort of like minis level and, and upwards for me, early stages of starting to play more like a senior game was good. Like and I played well. So I think it's just like, okay, you're, you can speak, you can respect from the lads. You play a good game. So they just kind of threw me yeah, into the leadership position. at that point because you may be the best player yeah. effectively. Yeah. But in terms, then, do you think he's, did the, did the coach see anything in you, do you think, in terms of coaching, even at that young age, of like the why that aspect of it, or just I coincidence? Know, I, I held the captaincy until I was 17. We got to Colts, and I just had enough, um, and I decided that I didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to just turn up and play. I, I got tired of it. So I, I don't think, you know when it's like when you're playing junior rugby at a local club, it's someone's dad who coaches you. Um, that was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I did, yeah, I did it for, for a number of seasons, and um yeah, I got to the stage where I just wanted to play. So I think it's probably to start off, you know, I think it, maybe he saw something, I don't know, but he gave me the job um, and then I obviously earned the right to keep it. And, and also part of the captain's job was ringing around trying to get a team together. So administratively, I remember on sort of Friday night, I'd be ringing around the whole squad. Are you in for tomorrow? This is a meet, blah, blah, blah. Do all the donkey work and that sort of stuff. But it teaches you a lot. Like I had to ring up people and get on the phone and every night, and if, if I hadn't done it, then the coach would be like, well, why do we... Well, why have we not got a team? So I ring the coach and tell them these are the players we got for tomorrow. But it's like at 12, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Well, whilst we're in then that age between 10 to 17, you, you've almost just start opened it there of, um, yes, coaching, but the entrepreneurship of um, working for yourself and, and, and everything that, you've, that you're doing and, and starting business. Um, your, that, that aspect that you, captain had to do like you say of organising ringing around it's not necessarily that was uh, a job but it almost was in a way and when did it just made me think about that entrepreneurial string to your bow mm. that runs through and has run through as long as I've known you where when did that start were you, were you when did you, were you do it like before you were even 17 were you selling yeah. things or whatever did I, well, not massive like you know some people tell stories of like oh I made my first million when I was 13 <laughs> it wasn't anything like that like I always wanted to run my own business I, so I spoke to my mum about it once I said where did it come from and she's like I don't know you just always wanted to run from your own business from what sort of age well I remember going to the Lake District when we were like we used to holiday a lot in a caravan in the Lake District and um I can remember that going back to probably around the same age, like 10, 12. My granddad was self-employed. He ran his own business in textiles, making kids clothing after the, after the war. Um, my other granddad was a farmer. Um, my mum and dad were both sort of employed through their lives. But my original dream was to open a water sports centre in the Lake District. That's what I wanted to do. Yes. Windsurfing, sailing. Like, I just loved it. I loved being out on the water, canoeing, anything. Um, I used to drive around the Lake District and I'd pick places, I'd see them. I'd be like, yeah, that's going to be me. And my mum was always like, yeah, you have the water sports school and I run the cafe. Like, she was going <laughs> to bake cakes because my mum was a like, farmer's daughter. She knows how to cook. Um, but it, it's always been there. I never... I always thought I'd work for myself, but the journey to get there was probably fairly sort of all over the place. But I don't know, like, even after university, like, everybody else was on grad schemes. Everyone else went off to work for Hewlett Packard. I did business management at university. And I was like, man, I'm not doing that. I wanted to travel and I wanted to go and see the world. And it made sense to me to get paid to do that. So that's when I left and went off for three years and just worked as a scuba diving straight away. But before we get into scuba, just. Um, want to go back to you mentioned that you said about that hip the first time you dislocated your hip so you're fortunately the first and only it's not <laughs> happened since it was brutal because that shaped a lot of um 
what you have done within Paralympic sport for so sort of uh, well you just tell that story I remember you've told me a, a while yeah. ago and it is it's powerful it has shaped things for you I think you. it was probably it must have been like under 13 season because I remember picking up a ward from an ex-England player I'm trying to think you know when you used to rugby club you get the oh, like, yeah. ex-players come along I can't remember who it was. Brian Moore. I'll have to check it. Um, but he, Peter Winterbottom, that's yeah, who it was really? back nice. in the day. Did, did he play for Nottingham? Or am I making that up? I think it was Leicester. Uh, right. it, it, yeah, we always but had the local-ish people around. I won, I won, I think it was like a player's player or player of the season. Or Most flexible. And I, when I went up and got the award <laughs> on my crutches. Right. Um, but I'd injured my... Basically, we the coach was away, our, our normal coach. So what they'd done was combined our practice group that was there for training that day with this with the age group above oh, so it was in training I it, was it was in training in game. Oh, yeah right. i remember on the 13 pitch at most the furthest away you want to be from the clubhouse when you're going on a on a stretch that was made out of chicken wire which is effectively what it was <laughs> and um yeah just we we're just doing some contacts we were just like some groundwork on the on the floor rookie mall and stuff and um i don't i still to this day don't know exactly what happened but someone fell on top of me and i don't know if it was a ball or, or somehow my leg was basically in a position where it just got levered out and um just yeah i remember the i remember it being really painful and no one knew what was going on no one had got any idea but I couldn't move my leg at all and the paramedics eventually got called they turned up and again I'd, I'd actually got carried from the pitch on a stretcher and um, the paramedic was saying to me like I need you to straighten your leg I need you to straighten your leg because he wanted to put it in a splint and I was like I can't move my leg I can't move my leg um, and later when I got to hospital eventually he, he gave up eventually and goes right we're just going to go so I got to hospital and um, they took an x-ray my hip is out at 90 degrees from where it should be so moving my leg wasn't really an option um and yeah i remember i remember sitting in the hospital in the in the ambulance my dad came with me in the in the on the way to hospital and they gave me gas and air for the first time when i was well i think about 12 years yeah. old i remember sitting up and looking at my dad with his wide eyes just going <laughs> what is this um but I remember, you know, my mum tells me like she was she met us at the hospital and she said the only thing I was saying to the consultant, the doctors is when can I play again? When can I play again? Like so, even at that age, it was like yeah. that was life. And I remember I then had two weeks in traction, so in a bed. I was supposed to be three, but because I was fit and healthy when I went in, I had a bit of basic strength. So I was basically strapped to a bed with my legs at forty-five degrees, pretty much weights on the end of my one leg for the traction. I like I couldn't. I had pulley thing to sit up, so I couldn't get out of bed for t- for two weeks. So if you want to go to the toilet, like you're at 12, 13 years old, you're calling a nurse and you're asking her to get you a pot, and you're gonna now take yeah. away my pot. Pretty rough. Yeah. Um, the only good thing about it was it happened over the Easter holidays. So everyone that came to see me bought me a chocolate egg. I had flipping <laughs> loads of Easter eggs. And Games. because it was school holidays, I didn't have to do hospital school either. And the rugby sevens were on. So I just uh. sat in bed for two weeks watching sevens. And then they let me out. That way. And then I was on crutches and in a wheelchair for like 13 weeks after that. And then that before I could... was when England won yeah. the world. Really? Yeah, I, yeah, remember, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, Andrew Harriman. Is that the, the was think, that the winger? Yeah, yeah, rapid. Yeah. There's all these like English guys that we'd yeah, never I think heard. It was Andrew Harriman. The these seven names. Of people, I'm just living, reliving the, uh, the, the rugby days. I remember that day, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was and that was it. That was a real eye opener when I when I was out, sort of rehabbing. Um, I remember the day when the, the, the sister of the ward came to me and, and my mum says they need to tell you something and she came in and she stood at the end of my bed and I can remember it like clear as day she says you may never play rugby again and I cried just broke down because it was the only other time you cried <laughs> yeah that was the last time I've suppressed all, all emotions since then that's my wife she'll tell you um, but it was everything like that yeah. was that was it and, and it, uh, yeah 
And then after that, so the whole, you had the next, you had maybe one or a number of experiences of like being then um, massively restricted and moving, being in a wheelchair during various parts before you get back to fully walking. If you knew, presumably knew you were going to make a full recovery, but it was quite a long, lengthy progress to get back and you got to experience what it was like to effectively have a period of time being uh, a level of disability. Yeah. And, and that sort of formed some ideas around where you wanted to go with you. Yeah, I never Coaching. knew if I'd play again until I got signed off with a consultant. Um, and then I remember going back for my first game after I'd been, my hip was dislocated, everybody was nervous. The coach was like, it's his first game back and no one knew if it was going to be all right or not. Um, but yeah, and my mum bought me like, well, she hired it. She, she goes, right, we need a wheelchair. And I hated the idea of a wheelchair. Yeah. I was very self-conscious as a child. Like I was, wanted to fit in, image conscious. Like that's, again, we can talk about that. But um, I cared about what people thought. And the worst thing for me was being seen by people that I knew in a wheelchair because I thought they would laugh at me. And then my mum came home and she goes, I'm going to hire a wheelchair. I'm like, right, fine. Because I knew I couldn't know my crutches all the time. Um, and she came home with this thing where she looked like she nicked it from like the local old people's home. It was tan brown. It was awful. Like a proper, imagine like, I'm thinking she's going to get me something cool. I'm young and it's going to look a great. It's going to look at least look stylish. It's the opposite end of the spectrum. It's tan brown. It had a cigarette burn in the armpit. I can remember it. It was proper, proper rickety. <laughs> and um, I hated it. I hated it. And so I used to try and go on my crutches as much as I could, but there's times we go out for a day where you just can't. And I wasn't allowed to put weight on my on my left leg. How long was that for? Three months total. Three well, months? Well, 13 weeks. Yeah, yeah that's why. Wow. So I, I, um, just, I was using a, a combination of the two. And um, yeah, and, and it was a real eye-opener from a disability perspective because you get a realisation of that time. And things have probably changed a fair bit now, but what, it, what was it like to be a wheelchair user? I mean, you would find that people would step over you, they wouldn't talk to you directly. The whole, like, the whole... Um, the whole thing of people asking my mum a question rather than talking to me, I'm like, oh, I've only dislocated my hip, there's nothing wrong with me, like, you can talk to me if you want. Um, so that kind of like set up a bit of a passion on and of going, oh, this isn't, that's not fair. Like that, that compassionate side of you going, yeah. I've now real got a first-hand experience of, of what it's like and having massive empathy. So off the back of that, I did my work experience when I was 15 at school, at a special school. So a friend of, um, a friend of mine, his mum was, worked at a special school for or kids with special uh, learning needs. And um, I went and volunteered there for a week. And, and they, some of those guys are, were fairly sort of severe mental um, impairments. And didn't you do a uh, design technology project yeah. or something? Was something to, there was... When I was 16, I did design communication, so like technical drawing effectively. <laughs> and we had 50 percent coursework so I redesigned my back garden as if it was going to be accessible for someone with an impairment so that was like raised beds making a wheelchair accessible um, putting bright flowers in there for visual impairments and that sort of stuff so and then my dad helped me make the model and I got an A for it like it yeah. smashed it um, but yeah so I researched all that sort of stuff we used to go to sensory gardens and see what they'd done and there's one at Woolerton Hall and, and all this sort of stuff so yeah. that was all kind of like bubbling away and then from a Duke of Edinburgh um, I volunteered at a local ski club for the disabled um, club, like the local dry ski slope, which isn't there anymore. And then did like a qualification to become a qualified guide so I could actually go and ski with disabled people. So it became like a real theme, to be yeah, fair, yeah. up until I went to university, probably. Um, and then, yeah, kind of it reared up again, sort of a little bit down the line. Yeah, but let's let's go into that then. So that obviously like ignited a, a passion of that and... Um, 
which came so that that and your coaching came together when you're when you'd finished doing your SNC um, qualifications and your first athlete that came through the door was none other than a double leg amputee by the name of uh, Sir Richard Whitehead. <laughs> yeah, still I've always to be knighted. I've always remember you saying that you just took the textbook and just threw it out of the window because you're like, I can't even use this that I've just learned. Yeah, it was a tough time actually because I've done my SNC qualifications and everything they teach you in exercise science is based on able-bodied people. And... Um, I'd, uh, I'd know I was working as, in sports development for Nottinghamshire County Council, and Rich was working as part of the same team. And he was into marathon; he was doing marathon running like he'd just gone under three hours for the for the leg amputee marathon. So he was sort of getting on with it. And I, I needed a case study for my for my accreditation for my UKSCA. So I got in touch with Rich and said, "Look, do you know anybody who's um, who needs some training or some support?" And um, he came back and said, "I do." I remember him sending an email; like it just popped up, and I was like, oh, "Okay, that's." That's cool. Let's do it. And it kind of did tick a lot of boxes for me. And he came in the gym the first time when I met him and I've like, I've got all this information and we just had to start from scratch because none of it was relevant. I could do some shoulder assessments and I kind of cobbled through the best that I could do. And we just finished like a real in-depth section of the course on um, corrective exercise. So I'm there now, sat at home and I remember clearly like just sat there and with my paper out and I'm trying to work out what's hamstring doing? Like what is semi-membranosis, semi-tendinosis doing? Because it's not knee flexing so we haven't got a knee. Like what happens when he runs and he circumducts? Like, and I was sat there going and, and, I, and I panicked myself out and I was like, I don't know if I can do this because it's just, I'd overcomplicated it. And Karen just came up to my wife and just said, just start. Like, just go and just start. And that's what we did. And then the following session after the session, we went in and I was like, right, can you stand on one leg? And no one ever asked Rich a single leg or a double leg amputee to stand on one leg before. And he did. And I was like, okay, balance isn't great. Let's work on that because it makes sense that if your balance improves, therefore you're going to run faster. And we did. He was quite tight around his hips because of his prosthetics. So we started to loosen those things off. So all of a sudden you're just in an environment where you either sink or swim. And like, we just try and sit down and we do like shoulder press or whatever. And we just, we just kind of ignore the issue. Or we dive in and we get a little bit dynamic and creative. And I like problem solving. Like I like, I like doing stuff that hasn't been done. And I remember talking to people about training disabled athletes, and they said to me like, "Oh, well, what is it?" And I like, I said to them, "Do you know like what's it all about?" And I'm like, "Well, one of the things that I like is no one knows what I'm, if I'm right or not because there isn't any research. You can't go to a bank of of knowledge on the internet and go type into Google Scholar or something and go um, training double leg amputees to run a marathon because no one's tested it." So I was almost free to be able to do whatever I wanted, which is an amazing thing because I wasn't tied to any like pre-existing, this is how you train that person. It was like yeah. literally a blank page. What do you want to do? And we made tons of mistakes. Like I remember once trying to do like a, like a tube walk with Rich, which is where you tie a band around your knees and you step to the side to try and get some glute activation because that would help for his running mechanics. And what happened was basically I tied his prosthetics together. He couldn't keep them apart and he fell over. <laughs> like, and there would have been times when people would have looked at the gym and gone, what are you doing? But it very quickly kind of like shaped a philosophy around how I train athletes or work with athletes and I don't know what it's like to be a double leg amputee so I always say to anybody that I was working with who, who had any form of impairment we need to be partners in this because you need to tell me what it's like and if it doesn't yeah. work I need you to be present in this and tell me we, this, does, this doesn't work but you know if we do it like this that might be better so yeah. it very much became a partnership of, of that and it's quite a unique thing like yeah. and, and this is 10 11 years ago Paralympic sport SNC has moved on fairly 
significantly since then. Yeah. There wasn't even many people for me to go to and say, what have you done in the past? I was pretty, I was pretty yeah. isolated. Well, that just uh, touching on what you, having to do that together with the person you're working with undoubtedly builds rapport very quickly and actually not necessarily as a tactic to try and build up that rapport but as coaches we know that that's half of the battle often getting people on side and I guess the just the approach you took naturally made that happen because you got some commonality where you're going and showing some vulnerability rather than coming in and going I've got all the answers this is the program we're doing you're actually coming with them and going I've got these ideas but we're going to work this out together and you need to tell me if you think I'm right or not yeah. um, I think the thing from, from Rich's perspective as well a fair play to him because he stuck with it was that I think he quite liked that I was working hard for him in terms of bringing something quite dynamic yeah. um, and I think he didn't want to just do the same stuff um, and I think obviously he started to feel the benefits. I mean, I remember the first time that he we we, we trained for a block, and I think he'd run, I think he'd run like two fifty seven for the marathon in Boston, and then we trained for that for that following block for Chicago, and I think he went out and ran, I want to say like it was it was a two. 50 maybe something like that. he knocked a decent amount yeah. of time like off his marathon and I was buzzing I remember being in the car and I was absolutely bouncing because you're like like I didn't know that this was going to work and it's worked and he's run faster and he was very much like I did what we'd done as part of yeah. SNC had been part of that um, so yeah and I think the other thing it's an interesting point about the rapport because I, I linked that back to what it was like when I was diving my job as a scuba diving instructor was to take people on a three or four day experience and you would get them coming in from all walks of life and then there's me as a fresh faced 21 year old, 22, uh, probably still looking about 14 <laughs> at the time. And they, they go, right, you're gonna teach me to dive. And they would obviously, some of them coming in quite scared. And how do you get people on board very quickly into a situation to make them feel comfortable, comfortable and confident that you're gonna be able to give them what they need? And I did that for three years and it's a it's a really beautiful thing because you get very good at people skills and like literally for the first time I meet you I need to be giving you confidence that I know what I'm doing and it's, and it's almost it's not an intentional thing it's not like how do I trick this person into thinking yeah. it you just you start having an air of just how you communicate but I think going back to practicing talking to groups of people from when I was 12 and telling lads we need to stretch our calves out doing like a really ropey calf stretch in hindsight yeah. um you just and all of the sort of the coaching bits you've done through and, and even through the skiing stuff you're taking people that you're gonna right, I'm gonna push you down this slope now like I need you to trust me you yeah. start getting quite good at it yeah so um, with the with because we'll go a little bit further along the coaching journey in, in a second to, to just you the scuba diving was before you then with, with what yeah. we just talked about with coaching with um getting into snc and what the thing about us i always i always joke about it because i just think it's i think it's funny i think it's cool but um there must be scuba diving instructor it's not scuba diving coach but i just put it in that bracket of yeah. like it's a coaching environment it's a like you said that rapport that trust it's teaching but i think one of the things about it is that as an absolute given you must have your qualifications and know what you're doing that's by the by um You've, you've, that, that's it that's got to be a given it's whether you're any good at it or not is you've got this really weird environment of being under the water or yeah. maybe on a boat with people for a certain amount of time and you don't have any control over that like what did you learn I just think that's a very unique environment what was one of the sort of what was the biggest things that you learned from having done that you know you didn't go into that 
with the with a half an eye on or oh, when I'm older yeah I'm a bit older I think I'm going to go into this area of coaching and then maybe start a school of calisthenics like mm. no idea about that but I do from what I see of you now I think that that's there's definitely things from there that you take into how you yeah. coach and how you deal with people well, I think it came from a point where I wanted to travel I'd got my, my open water and my advanced open water qualifications on one university holiday so I had I, I enjoyed diving I just thought, well, why am I going to go and pay loads of money to travel? And I might as well just go and get a job. And I like the idea of living in a place rather than doing like a round the world experience and not really seeing much of the life. I wanted yeah. to go. And, so I lived in Sydney in, in Australia for like 18 months around about. I went up to Cairns for a bit as well. But um, I loved it. I became an Australian sort of resident for a period of time. And I had, a, I had friends in a community around that, that place. Yeah, but you. <laughs> I've always wanted one. I, never, I didn't actually have a car when I was there. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a real process behind scuba diving and Paddy, the the organization that I trained through would go, this is how you're going to teach. So if we were doing confined water skills, for example, we would be like, right, this is a skill we're going to do. We're going to take a mask off. We're going to put it back on. I'd taught them through it above the water. We'd go under the water. And then you have a series of of cues of like, if you don't do it properly, how am I going to correct you? These are all the things you go wrong. So when you do your training, they set up the scenarios. So I'll be my instructor group with five or six other people and like, if it was my turn to be an instructor, the lead instructor would say, right, go under the water, I'd go down, and he would set them up to go and do something wrong. So they would either bolt, take the mask off and bolt to the surface. And so you, it's kind of role yeah. play. And then I have to kind of calm down and, and sort it all out. But you, yeah, so it's, it's like, it's, well, this is what you're going to do. We're going to go and do the skill. Now I'm going to correct you under the water. And then when we come back to the surface, I'm then going to debrief you on that skill and tell you what you didn't do well and what to remember to do next time. So the same process that we use now is I do it like this, not like this, like this, like from a simple coaching process. That's embedded very much in in how we train. And then they go through the confined water. and, And it's an interesting one when you get people out into open water. Sydney sometimes didn't have good conditions. I mean, it's not anything like diving in the UK, but we would sometimes have zero vis. You'd have you've got to get these people through the course we need to sign them off they're here for the weekend um and yeah dealing with panic underwater like people stress out like and drop the weight belts and all of a sudden you're like up and down like risking giving yourself decompression sickness to try and sort other people out very much serving kind of role in, in that way um and I, I think it's just a, a real wide variety of of skills you get to be very good and precise that this is what i want because yeah. it's not like you haven't got five minutes to explain how to do something yeah. it's, it's well, like someone might die if it goes wrong yeah. like it's not yeah, yeah. generally in the gym that's not not the case yeah it's not it was never that extreme we have like safe recreational limits and and it's very like diving is very safe you could you could really make a mistake and you'd be all right still yeah. But, um, but I yeah. feel like the fact that you're underwater means it's a little bit more dangerous than just being yeah. in the gym. Like. We died, I was like diving every day and there was times when I was that comfortable underwater, I didn't even feel like I was yeah. underwater. We just went around like having a regulator in your mouth and breathing was like as normal, normal as not having one in. Um, and it was great. It was good fun. Like you meet loads of different people. Um, you get to do some cool stuff. I love diving and... Um, yeah, I think the teaching process was, and I, I got to the point where I was an IDC staff instructor, which basically meant I could assist on the instructor program. So I went through my, my the first level of my instructor training to teach diving. And yeah. a lot of specialities along the way, like enriched there and night diving and deep diving and rec diving, like all those kind of specialities. So you just get this really diverse yeah. mix of skills. Yeah. Well, I think well, just you've also, after, like, post doing your um, strength and conditioning uh, qualifications, then actually went on to teach that course that you'd just yeah. been on as well for a few years. But I want to, um, so teaching as part of 
as a subcategory of coaching almost as something that's been a thread all the way through for you. Um, but I want to touch on a little bit now in terms of going into the next part of the story after, so you've done your scuba diving, you took on your first um, para uh, athlete to train and then your, your S&C career going in Paralympic sport took you to the games in, in Rio um, in 2016 and that was almost like the once you embarked on that it was almost like the, the top of the mountain the pinnacle for that just um, just talk what was the experiences of that and, and what that was what that was like it's a unique experience and yeah it was amazing I mean I, I was fortunate I had um, for London I had trained I think four athletes that competed at London um, and I remember I was in the stadium and Rich won his 200 metres and um if anyone's ever seen Rich Whitehead run, like especially, it's better now, but like back in the day, it, it, the British crowd was amazing. It was a sellout crowd in the, in the Olympic Stadium. It was like 80, 90,000 people there, whatever it was. And when Rich started set off, it was, they basically got introduced. And because he was British, he got a massive cheer. <laughs> it was just because literally anybody who was British got a massive cheer. And then the gun goes. And how everyone, well known do you think was he at that point? No, no one knew. There was only a few of us who knew how the race was going to okay. go. Um, none of the Paralympics athletes were known at that time really yeah. London Couple. really put them on the yeah. map Ellie, didn't it? some of those guys had achieved well in, in um, Beijing in Beijing so Ellie, Ellie for Simmons, example yeah. but it was Richard's first athletics Paralympics he'd been as a sledge hockey player to Winter Olympics before yeah. so no one he was no, wasn't really a poster boy um, a little bit had a few posters around but the majority of people wouldn't have known who he was because people didn't go to watch the Paralympics because they were interested in Paralympic sport specifically they just wanted to be part of the the London experience yeah well we, me and me and Catherine went me and Mark, we yeah. went down to watch some of the para stuff because no one could get I didn't know tickets it, yeah. for the Olympics yeah I didn't know you I didn't know anyone yeah. back then and it wasn't I didn't have a desire to yeah. work in Paralympic sport at that point it was just yeah couldn't get tickets for the um and we wanted to go down and, yeah, and experience mm. it. And it was amazing because there was like, it was, it was really, people got the Paralympic spirit really well. So when, when Rich set off, basically the gun goes and everyone runs off in front of him. And all of a sudden he's like 10, 15 meters behind at the back. Yeah. And you literally heard this. Maybe even more, like it's, yeah. It, yeah. You heard the excitement of the crowd. We've got a British guy. And all of a sudden it's went like, everyone like, it's like an audible, <laughs> oh. And it was like, oh, it's not very good. <laughs> And then if, if you see Rich, like he comes up and he gets around the bend and then on the straight, like someone was described his performance at London to me like an American muscle car. He comes around the bend, like backside hanging out, it's like drifting around the outside and he hits the straight and then they just puts the gas on. And he literally went from last place to winning by about 15 meters in the space of an 80 meter race. And the, it, as, as he came through the field, like, it's giving me goosebumps now yeah. just thinking about it, like the, the lift of the crowd. And when he won, like everyone just went nuts. <laughs> and I remember like we were down quite close to the, to the track. And I remember thinking, I need to remember this. So I turned around and looked up at the stand and there was just flags everywhere. And I was like, I've been part of that. Yeah. Like, and it was amazing because it will never be like that again. In my lifetime as an SNC coach, I don't think we'll ever have a games at, at, in London. And I probably won't be coaching yeah. people to, have to to success. So it was literally, it was incredible. And I, I think came, people can find that probably if they search 200 meters London, yeah. Richard Wise, T42, it. 200 meters London. Yeah, it is worth it. watching. It's an amazing yeah. race. 
So I came back from that and I was reflecting on it and there's some of the guys won medals as well, but I wasn't part of the team. I'd been to the holding camp to support Rich on a one-on-one, but no one had gone, you're now part of Team GB or, or Paralympics GB as it is for the, for the Games. So I came back and I said to Karen, I want to go to the Games. I want to be part of a, of a, a Paralympic team that goes to, to Rio. And that was like pipe dreams because not a lot of S&C coaches get to go because once we yeah. hit that holding camp, like you know, you did the holding camp almost, the team goes, right, your job's done into competition phase. We don't really need S&C. Yeah. Oh, on holiday. Yeah. For and a there's wedding. a limited number of accreditations <laughs> for the games and stuff. So I, I was it was a long shot. I didn't know if I'd ever make it. But Paralympics GB, which is the the the, the, the represents the whole team. So like athletics and swimming, they all become part of Paralympics GB to represent the country. So they have a core staff. So they advertise for strength and condition coach to run the holding camp. So I applied for that, did a group interview process, got the job, and that was it for me. I'd got the kit, like I'd got the the, the opportunity to go to Belo Horizonte to run the holding camp, being yeah, part so of the team. holding camp in for the whole team in yeah in for Brazil. Those, those those teams that chose to hold to, in Brazil yeah. because there's only a four hour time difference. A lot of teams went straight in, but there yeah. are a number of teams that hold in Brazil. Um, so I did two or three trips back to there before the actual competition and loved it. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And then the same around the same time, I was actually out there twenty. 15 and I got a phone call from the performance director of para swimming Chris Ferber and then who basically had a conversation with about taking on the lead S&C job um, and been, I'd known Chris for a while and, and ultimately we ended up taking it on and it was both of us Jacko and I who, who started to deliver that contract from the January 2016 we went through competitions a really busy year like and then I think it would have been after Europeans in May June time they selected the team to go to the games and then they gave me accreditation. They thought that I'd added something to the team environment. So I got, I, I went to, in the September, I went to run the holding camp in Belo Horizonte and then flew down to join the team in Rio. And then going into the games village was like, yeah, like say pinnacle of my career because I one didn't know if I'd ever get there. I was happy with the holding camp, yeah, yeah. but to get to the competition and do a 10 day competition with swimming, um, just being in the va- in the in the camp is just it's quite a it's a, it's a special experience. It was it was amazing. It was only yesterday you were in a GB stash actually. Yeah, I still roll it out every now and again. <laughs> but it means that it's like no, people yeah. talk about kit. Like kit is it, it's nice that someone gives you kit, but it's not about that. It's actually it's just the recognition. It's what it represents. That you, you it represents can perform at that level. Yeah. Like you, I got to the top of where I could get to yeah. in, in the field. Really. Yeah, and. It, your ability as a coach was recognised to that high level and high standard that they wanted. They saw something yeah. like that. <laughs> 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 a nice guy to around. Um, and that gives us a little segue into um, into then the school of calisthenics because you, when you, as you said, January 2016, you got we started that contract with um, British Para Swimming. And that was when we also scored calisthenics had officially sort of launched with our website and free yeah. beginner's guide. Of, that's all we literally started with. Um, and I remember some conversations around that time of like, we were, we were, we had very little time to give the scorecards. We didn't really know where that was going. It was just like a little side yeah. uh, to quote Gary Vee. That was the side hustle that you do, um, a couple of hours on here there whenever yeah. whenever possible the odd Instagram and Twitter post or whatever it was um, but, but rather than, rather than delving into and repeating some of the things that we've talked about with the scorecards that when people have asked us on podcasts and whatnot I wanted to ask more like what has 
life now is quite different in terms of work and work being a big part of your life. What is the school of calisthenics? Um, and I mean, from the, the business, but the, the people within it, um, how it's affected your training or just how, what has it done? What, what has it done for you? Like what, how has it made things different or what are some of the differences it's made in your, in your life or the impact it's had on you? Yeah, I mean, it's very different now to yeah. 2016. Like it's yeah. Well, before from a, we can talk from a business perspective, we talk about that. Like I, I used to sell time, so my career, my success as a private practitioner, like I, I wasn't employed by the English Institute of Sport. Yeah. Even when we worked for swimming, we were, we were employed as consultants. Um, so operating under our other business um, banner. I'd realized when I came back from Rio that what do I want to do in, in four years time? Because I achieved what I wanted to achieve. It wasn't anything else. There's more games, but to yeah. do more games, I had to do more of the same. Um, and as you, as anyone knows, as you progress in, in coaching or any sort of career, the higher up the ladder you go, the further away from the front line that you actually get. So therefore you become more of a technical lead or you're in a head of sports science yeah. role. Those are not necessarily people that are going to go to the game. So if you want to be on the cold face with athletes, then, then you need to stay working there. But that doesn't necessarily represent a career progression unless I've kind of moved into a management position. Um, so I, I kind of come back and was very reflective about do I want to continue to sell time for the rest of my life because there's, a, there's an infinite amount of it and there's and um, funding in sport and athletes ability to pay is very finite. Um, so I think it was it, the school of calisthenics in some ways has offered up a future in many ways. Of I, I didn't want to go and work for an organisation. I'm, I'm what's the right word like stubbornly self-employed now. Like I don't think I'd be a very good employee because being out of it for too long yeah. um, and I want to shape my own way I want freedom to do what we want to do and direction and, and pivot and innovate and create and not have someone tell me that I can't do that sort of stuff so I think the school of calisthenics brings together everything that I'm probably reasonable at like it allows me to coach I, the branding and stuff like the creative side of stuff that's kind of a little baby of mine which I know one day I'm probably going to have to give up as, <laughs> as it grows um, but I get to play around with graphics I get to do the visual stuff I get to write and be creative in those things um, so it's, it's massive like it's it's given us something which we can kind of I can base my future on um, and like yeah life has changed like I sit down a lot more now which is I used to be real like on my feet all the time in the gym admin was a luxury um, working with athletes but we couldn't do what we're doing now if I hadn't gone through some like it sounds like we talk about like scuba diving and Rio like it sounds amazing um, people go your life's amazing I go yeah yeah but like go and be self-employed and go and start from scratch like largely by yourself and build 10 years of experience and see like, yeah, there, there's some icing, but there's also, there's a lot of graft have gone yeah. in. Um, and there's some hard times that we've been through. Like we've talked before, we haven't got time to go into it all now, but some of the stuff of when you're literally doing work now, which you look at now and go, cracky, that was, it was rough. I used to work with Men's Rugby Union at Nottingham Trent University at nine o'clock on a Friday night. Like, do you think they wanted to be there? <laughs> they didn't. Neither did you. But who wrote that to me? Yeah. Um, and I was there's some sessions where I'll be working till 10 o'clock at night. I'll go home. Corin would be, already be in bed. I'd come in, walk up the stairs, get into bed and go back out the stairs at 6, 7, 30, or six 7 o'clock. It's the next morning to go and train some swimmers in Mansfield. Like yeah. it's, you put the time in. 
Um, so anybody who kind of sees what we're doing now and says like, oh, you guys have like, it's gone quick. No, no, like, this is like you say, like you reflect on it and go, well, this has been largely in the making since I was 12. I didn't know where it was going, but yeah, we've yeah. been honing what we've been doing for the best part of my the period of life that I can actually remember. Like, what yeah. do you remember before you were 10, 12 years old? Not a great deal. Yeah. Like, now, I, it's one of the things I love about, there's a number of things I love about school counseling, but one of them is I feel it allows you to really showcase like a whole range of skills that you've got um, it's nice of you to say and it's, <laughs> it, is, it's, it is it's good it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing about it I, I honestly think that and um, but my final I guess to, to sort of wrap things up and my final question is to give people a bit of an insight because people will see you do an amazing handstand on Instagram and then and that's it and you, you mentioned there about graphics and someone might have been what do you mean you, you actually do the graphics and it's like just give us a bit of an insight into so you coach at like a workshop um, and you answer messages on Instagram and whatnot. But like, what else does Tim, head of handstands and exercise <laughs> science, just a, just a little flavour of like what do what does the what do you do at the school council? There isn't this massive um, team of people that uh, develop everything. It's largely you and I. Yeah. I think we've, as, as the business or as our journey through the School of Calisthenics has progressed, we've become better at dividing out like what we do. Um, so nowadays, like I, I generally lead the, the product development stuff. So if we're going to develop a workshop or a, a course or a new piece of information, like a coaching course, or we're going to put some content on the uh, on the virtual classroom, then I'll probably do quite a bit of the writing and the content generation around that. And it's, it's not like Dave is very... Um, modest at the start when he's like I'm the head coach like I don't really see myself as that I just happen to have been in the game for a little bit longer so I just not very clever and can't spell so it's better <laughs> I stay away from writing it's just easier for me to write um, and it, I like yeah I like that challenge of creating a message and, and, and playing around with some stuff and, and anyone who's read the ebooks, like I wrote those in the first days and anything the content that you see and, and blogs and we all kind of contribute to those graphics and layout and that sort of design if you go in the virtual classroom that is generally the, the layout and the branding um, that's all kind of my little handiwork and we have had people who have helped to make us, things look nice yeah one of the someone was giving us we got a logo design I didn't do the logo and we have we had some help with the branding when we did the website as then they gave us two fonts and some colours um, and I run with that I guess that's yeah. the sort of thing where I can kind of go this is what I wanted to look it's like one area that lets you be you let you be creative in that area but then the other thing it, that it allows us to be creative just like in when you're doing Paralympic SNC no one could tell you no no you don't do that with the double leg empty because there was no yeah. guidelines there's a little bit of that creativity in the coaching of calisthenics where we're figuring out when you're 35 years old how do you learn to do a handstand mm. because you might not it might not be the same as what you do when you're six at, for, at gymnastics yeah yeah, yeah um, absolutely I th- yeah and I think that's the, the thing that, that we probably took from Paralympic sport more than anything in terms of how it related to calisthenics was um, we don't re- we're not going to play by the rules like we yeah. don't people often say to us oh, where are you inspired from and like I don't I generally don't look at a lot of other people's stuff because I don't want I don't want that to influence it so if I go and read all of stuff from another big calisthenics authority or gymnastics that's just going to lead me down the route of going well this is how you do it I don't want that because I don't want one I don't want someone to tell me what to do and two I like the idea of like I want to understand it because if I understand it through my own experience I know what works I know what doesn't and that means I think it enriches the value that we can then give people rather than going why have you chosen that progression well I don't know because everyone does it yeah yeah, um, well, so I think quote, it makes it a bit more unique. So. Quote from the film The Other Guys: I think you're a peacock. We've got to let you fly. <laughs> but you are. You're best when you're allowed to be creative and allowed to just that freedom. And it's it's nice that um, well, it's more than nice that the 
that you have that with the scorecast and it's nice I'm, I'm also a thorn in everybody else's side because I'm often the one that's like slowing stuff down being meticulous like <laughs> too much like OCD on attention to detail sometimes but uh, there's a lot that goes like with it and go well if we're going to put something out like I, I, I see that what we what we put out has to be the best of what we've got yeah. otherwise there's no point doing it so anything that you read from us is literally something that we have poured our heart and soul into we don't do anything by halves um, and I'm very sort of conscious that there's there's been a lot of work that goes into getting to the point that I did in elite sport um, being as an individual and not having anybody really kind of like no organization just promoting me through the ranks and giving me opportunities like I've kind of had to to go out and fight for them and work for them deliver results to get them um, that for me is it's important that what we do now is a representation of that from from my reputation yeah. and the business reputation I want people to think that we're legit and yeah. because it's there's a lot of skin in the game to get to this point and I want to showcase what we know and I want I want people to have an experience that people I, I sometimes think about this if, if in the future we talk more about business like if we talk about a brand I want people to experience the school of calisthenics I want them to I want them to feel that oh, this is this like it's genuinely yeah. what you do with us it is it is me and you it's, it's, this yeah. is what we're about what you yeah, see you want is it what to you feel get. something you want it to be alive yeah. you want it to mean something I want there to be a connection between what we're doing and that's more than us going here's a progression for a handstand yeah like it's how we approach caring for people how we approach being positive around people encouraging people like yeah. those are all things and the brand is fun I like I want it to be playful yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I think it's one of the amazing things about the about social media these days and the internet and it, it, it at times gets bad press around because bad things sometimes happen as a result of various different things going in there but in terms of being able to connect with and make a personal connection interact with people all over the world like that's we wouldn't be able to do that um, and we wouldn't be able to give that personal touch without the ability to send a, a, a video in a direct message to someone that wants some feedback on their yeah. handstand on Instagram, for example. Yeah, yeah. It is. It yeah, is. And being countercultural within that, like I don't know that the reports are that one of the things that people like most about the School of Calisthenics is that we actually reply to messages, which for me seems, well, what else would we do? Just ignore them. But I like the opportunity for us to not go down the route of being negative and critical and calling people out and just generally feeling that, that vibe that can happen on social. Like I want to book the trend because it's not adding value to anybody. Like it's, that's not how I want someone to be like, just because it's on social doesn't mean that like, that's not how I want you to treat me, like to, yeah. to call me out all the time and be horrible. Like, so I think that's the thing where just bringing a human connection, but even in a digital space, and that's like with a virtual classroom, like we're literally there. Though. It's not just a package where you just... There was, there was a lady this morning who was like, Cranky, that was a quick reply. That like both of us had replied within the hour or whatever that she'd we asked care. a question. Uh, yeah. So, no, that is that is beautiful, and that is um, that's Tim from the school cast sharing a little bit more about where he has come from and and that background into coaching. And I'm sure um, if you've got any more questions, then he'd be more than happy to answer those directly with you. And um, I like this style. I think we're going to have a few more. We've got a, uh, we're going to do a, a role reversal, um, and then we're going to get on some of the, the other coaches that we've been working with, Seth. Um, and Jude and also some of the students are coming on to give their their sort of insights into what the scorecast clinics um, and their background has meant uh, to them and we look forward to those coming very soon so until next week Tim I get to sign it off as well class dismissed <laughs>